Welcome to Data and Construction. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Amy Hodler, Knowledge Graph Evangelist at, at Relational.ai. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Me too. So one of the things that we've talked about, I mean, there's a lot that Relational does and there's a ton that you've personally done. In fact, I, I came to you because of this amazing talk on AI and knowledge graphs that I saw you do. But one of the things in our pre-meeting you talked about was data centricity. I mean, I think your, your take on this was before we do all that other stuff, let's think about the kind of philosophy of how we approach things. So can you tell me what data centricity means? Yeah, so you probably hear over the next few years, and, and I'm probably hearing now, people talking about data-centric apps, data-centric ways of doing things, data-centric programs. And when I first heard this, it, it seemed it seemed silly to me because I, at first I thought, well, it's always been you know about data. You can't have an application without data. You can't have a knowledge base without data. Of course, it's data-centric. But what people are really talking about in this movement that they're calling data centric is about moving the focus to making the data not just a inert element. So it's not just kind of entities and things that I then go do stuff with, but actually trying to push more intelligence into the data itself. And so, for example, one of the things that, that people talk about is a data centric app. Well, Again, how do you have an app without data? Aren't they all? But as opposed to putting the the smarts and the logic into the application, they're actually pushing it into the data that is often somewhere else. And so you're focusing the, the application on the data, but it's smart data now. So as opposed to just a, a better algorithm, we're now trying to make the data and the logic wrapped around the data so that you can then use that kind of knowledge element in different areas. So you don't have to have a bunch of intelligence at the endpoints where your data is actually used. It's more efficient to make the data itself intelligent. So I was going to say one of the things that just, I wish, you know, I don't know how terminology happens, but I wish we had called it like intelligent data or knowledge centric or something like that. But the, but the name is stuck as, as data centric. When you say pushing intelligence down to the, or logic down to the data, what does that look like? Yeah. So that's actually what relational AI was founded to, to help do. And so what that looks like is you have what's happening in a lot of trends right now is we're bringing data together. And I think you and I've talked a bit about that is, you know, trying, you know, people as that they have data all over the place and we're trying to bring data together. So it's easily accessible, but what's happening when we do that is the intelligence around the data that's normally in an application kind of gets disjointed, kind of gets siloed in and of it, itself. And so if you can bring the intelligence, and by intelligence, I'm thinking of things like a logic, application logic, business rules, mathematics, because they're just logic too, and bringing that closer to the data itself and bringing it, in some cases, into the database. So having application logic within a database itself so that then developers can use it in various different ways and more efficiently. That's interesting. And what is the process that gets, like, how does that differ in how you build what you build? Well, I think today what we're in this interesting sea change 
where people are recognizing that data is siloed. It's all over the place. You can't find what you need. You can't trust what you have. You don't know where things are duplicated. And trying to bring that mess together is what's brought us to things like data fabric, data mesh. And so we're kind of in this this kind of sea change as opposed to having things siloed where maybe you had you had your your data for a certain application really tightly coupled with the application itself so maybe you have a oh i don't know a a, a spreadsheet finance tracking application and you have a database and the data in that is used just for the application. So that's that's kind of the past. But what we're seeing is this change is, is the desire to move all of that data that's all over the place in enterprises to be more accessible, sometimes in single areas, like a data warehouse or a data lake, but just make it more accessible in general. And so that's kind of the, I think we're in a, a sea change, I think a shift in how people are thinking about getting to data. And I think... The data lake idea or the data warehouse idea, it feels like it's a step on a process, right? Where first you're saying, look, man, grab hold of what, like inventory and understand what you have. And that's, that often leads to a data lake and often it's like in construction, it leads to people realizing how much unstructured PDF data information they have that, that they can't do anything with. And that leads to a whole bunch of other things. But also I understand some of what data centricity can mean is you start pushing responsibility back out now that you've presumably cleaned some things up and you've got some data governance put together, that you're pushing the responsibility for maintaining the data out to the, the business units or out parts of the business that are producing the data. Is that something that you're normally advocating as well? Well, it really depends on the complexity of, of the organization and what they need to do. But it's interesting. That's, that's one of the differences and approaches between a data mesh and a data fabric, mm-hmm. which I, I know are kind of confusing terms, and I'm not sure if there's an exactly one definition. But the both a data fabric and a data mesh, I think of as concepts, mm-hmm. not a particular technology. But the, the concept is how do we make sure that the data we have is accessible and you know easily shareable and has some kind of governance in it, regardless of where you are in an organization? And the difference I see between the data fabric and data mesh, which they both can be used together, you don't have to choose one or the other, but they're both looking at you know bringing that together. The data fabric is usually a little more technology centric, things like like APIs and how we might integrate. And data meshes usually focus more on organizational change. So what you're just talking about of like getting the organization to do updates, that to me feels like more of a data mesh way of looking at it. But both of them need governance in it. Both of them need common you know, ways to share and, and search and find for information. A lot of times in the data mesh kind of world, you, you will sometimes try to develop a way to have almost an overlay, kind of like a think of a mesh, I guess a mesh overlay, kind of a virtual layer to find things, whereas people who adopt data fabrics tend to look more at kind of one-to-one interoperability. Well, this is a good time to take stock a little bit. We've now got three data terms. <laughs> yeah. And and that's kind of the some of the point of this podcast, I think, right now is to disambiguate or at least to move towards defining some of these. So data centricity, as I've heard you describe it and, and some other things I've seen is, is really making data 
the center of what you do. <laughs> I know, given the name, right? <laughs> but 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 it also it may, it means that you think of applications as serving the the access production and 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 you know use of data as opposed to applications being something that you know that data is there for it's the other way around that the application is there for the data in, in, instead of the other way around it's a really interesting way of viewing you know how you or how you orchestrate things how you how you provide value but it's that's that's kind of one big concept yeah. If you were to describe a data mesh from scratch, because we kind of backed into it a second ago, how, what would you say a data mesh is? So I would say that it's breaking like large enterprise systems into subsystems managed by kind of a core team or technology. So unlike like a data fabric, which relies on metadata to drive recommendations for things like how should this data be delivered, a data mesh will usually leverage more of a subject matter expert to oversee domains within a mesh. So again, like you were talking about pushing, so the mesh, you know, again, it's usually pushing that management updates and some of the governments out to the different organizations. Whereas, and these are concepts, not technologies. And then the fabric is more kind of trying to bring them together and may even try to bring them together into more centralized stores and things of that nature. So would you say then that like, thinking about organizing this in the minds of people who maybe have heard these terms but haven't thought about them a lot. Data centricity is a, is a really high level just way of viewing the world. Data mesh is a bit of a top-down way of organizing what you do where. And maybe data fabric is a little closer to the tools that are being used to do things. Is that, is that accurate or, or what I should I say instead? No, no, I think that I think that's really good. And actually, I really like the way you have positioned in the data centric world that the application is, you know, is serving or is serving things with the with the data. I think that's a really nice way to look at it because it is very in the data centric world. Applications are really important, but not but not because they hold all of the intelligence, but because they can serve everything, you know, behind the, the scenes that can kind of serve up intelligence. And then I think you're, I, and another way to look at the data fabric versus mesh, I do think data mesh is definitely more, you know, organizational policy, things of that, but it's also more decentralized and data fabric is a little more about usually a little more technology centric and has a tendency to have a little more centralization feel to it, to me. I want to go back to why someone would want to be data centric. And, and, you know, a lot of the folks that listen to this podcast and that I, I, I distribute it to are in the IT world. And it, it feels like this grew up because organizations were realizing if we are so focused on applications, the complexity just blows up because everything's a different data model. And the way you're doing things is, you know, if, if you're focused on building the functions of the application and data is a secondary thought, you wind up later with, after two years or three years of operating with tons of data that doesn't talk to it itself and you, every every bit of data is only really useful to the application that created it. In contrast, you say, well, actually, data is an asset. And as, as a result, we need to create it so that it can be used by, by anything we make. And that also means that we don't have to worry so hard about who's building a given application because all, all it is is a thing that, that is using our core asset. So, you know, I'm not worried about whether this is in Python or not. Obviously, there's benefits to thinking about, you know, using the same sets of, of technologies, but it's just less critical than it was. And you can throw away apps with a lot less. I love that thought. It's like, yeah, you toss, 
toss away apps as you do and don't need them. You know, absolutely. And I, I think you said something that, that kind of sparked another idea or I think a, another another trend that is all part of this, you know, data everything trend right now. Is it part of, I think part of why we're, we're talking so much about data centric fill in the blank apps, approach, analytics, all of that is because of what's happened with this move to the modern data stack. Mm-hmm. So yeah, another, I get another term for you. So the modern data stack is, is really looking at a, a stack of technology to, to bring together data. And just as you said, make it more useful for, you know, just about anything you might need. And that is a little more te- technology centric. But what it's done is it's actually helped us move data to a, cl- a cl- kind of cloud native environment, very much focus on data warehouse, although at often we'll take in data lake as well. But this idea that you're going to move into kind of a, a centralized location for or locations fluid for for data like Snowflake and, and a Google BigQuery, Amazon Redshift, that sort of a thing, but then have in place governance which might include, you know, data catalogs, data observability, and then make this data more fluid to different tools like BI tools, do tracking. So processing is really important as well. But in doing all of this, what we've realized is we've pulled this data in so that it can be more fluidly managed, monitored, integrated in, even reverse ETL, getting it out. Mm. All We've done all of this but we've now made the data perhaps less intelligent because the logic that's in the application that it used to use is now at those endpoints that you talked about. So it used to be in the past, you had your, and I think you started with this question, we had this, uh, you had the data and the applications really tightly coupled and the, the logic, they're tightly coupled. And we've moved the data into these kind of into the modern data stack so it can be more fluidly used. But now we've got the logic and the knowledge of how that data should be used kind of orphaned out there. And we have these knowledge silos happening. And how do you address this knowledge silo question? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to look at it. And what we're seeing, though, is trying to bring, using a couple different technologies, graph technology, knowledge graphs, one area you can do that. But what we're, we're really seeing is saying, well, hey, doesn't it make sense to try to couple the logic closer to the data? And if we can couple the logic and the data, then we make that data smart again, and then it can be used in different situations. And I, I think I threw out another term, knowledge graph. Mm. Should I pause a moment and just explain what that is? Let's get into the knowledge graphs in a moment. What I'd, I'd love to talk about is, you know, it, when you say, first we said we're, we're going to make data number one, like the center of, of what you think about. We're going to focus on data models and, and preparation of the data so that it lasts beyond the application that created it. So you're kind of decoupling it from the application. And then to the point you made a moment ago, and then you wind up with these knowledge silos that are, are, you know, themselves create another set of problems. Now we say we're going to put logic back to the data, but it feels like we've made a transformation. We've changed what we mean by the word logic. So, so yeah. what, what would the logic that, that sits with the data look like? 
Well, it can be it can be application logic. It can be business logic. And when I think about business logic, I think about like more more business models. Like how do you you know what's the what's the model of your business for this particular purpose? How do you logically decide to make a an approval or a disapproval of of a loan or or whatever it it might be? And it can also be mathematics. So logic is all of those things. And being able to layer that in in a composable way, so not locked in directly with the data so you can't move the logic around, but have it associated with appropriate data that you can reassociate with other data. But you also have the context of how that composable unit. And for, for me, when I think about logic and data together, Then I add the context of how it should be used or different situations it should be used in. And I have a, I would call it like a knowledge unit or a knowledge block, but you can compose different knowledge blocks by moving around while logic is used in now more context. Like maybe I have the logic of whether to make a purchasing decision or not associated with particular data of my inventory. And I use it in context, say, certain times of the year or when certain alerts, like a low inventory alert or something happens, and then I enact that logic. To me, all those multiple different items come together as a block of knowledge, but they shouldn't be held so tightly that we can't use those elements with with other data. So I should be able to use that same logic in that same context and then use it with different data. Like maybe I acquire another company and I now want to use that knowledge unit, but change the data source out to this other company's data source. That sounds really interesting. And I do think we've now we've now skirted what a knowledge graph is enough that we need to get into it. Because I also think that's a, a pretty, you know, organic way to describe what relational does. But, you know, uh, on this podcast, we've had folks talk a little bit about knowledge graphs. We've had folks talk a little bit about graph databases, but I'd love to hear you from from the start describe what a knowledge graph is, and then we can go from there into how relational is doing some pretty interesting things with it. Yeah. So I'll start with what a graph is. So so a graph is basically just a model of connections between things, and it can, you can even have a graph on your whiteboard. Anytime you draw circles and lines to describe your business process, you have a business model and a business graph. And so that model with the lines and the circles together on your whiteboard is a graph. And that's all a graph is. It's it's a model of the real world or your business world in a format which has entities and connections. That's it. Now, People put that into, you know, into a database and computer modeling so you can then do really cool things and, and compute over it. When people talk about knowledge graphs, that takes the idea of a graph and adds in, typically people mean you're adding in organizing principles. You're adding in hierarchies and relationships. You know, a cat is a sub component of the feline category, which is a subcomponent of mammals, which is a subcomponent of, of, and you could keep going. But what having those kind of organizing principles lets you do is it lets you infer meaning when you add new components to your, your database or your graph. And a lot of times people will talk about semantics. Semantics is just a fancy word for meaning. So you're adding in just additional information about the, the lines and circles in your graph. And so knowledge graph, 
helps you organize and model your, in this case, we're talking about business, using connections between things to understand the context and then do other things. So then do analytics, then do knowledge sharing, searching, querying, and inferring new meaning from it. And when you think about the those relationships between the nodes. I mean, I don't know if I forgot if you use the word node, but it can mean a lot of things. I mean, you just talked about a hierarchy with cats and felines and all that. <laughs> and that's one, of course, but there's a lot of different things you can do, right? Like, you know, Amy did podcast. The did is is a relationship, right? Or Amy did the, this podcast, whatever. You know, I, I think it's an interesting, and I love the, that you brought up semantics because I think some of the way that that non-data people can understand this, or even data people that aren't, knowledge graph people, is is almost like a sentence, right? Where you've got Absolutely. noun one, noun two connected by their relationship, which usually looks like a verb, even if that verb is a possessive. Yeah. And that's really common for the way to look at knowledge graphs is to to almost read them, which is why they're so cool. You can almost read them as a sentence and tell stories and infer meaning. And it you might have a node with many, many Um, relationships. And those relationships look like, as you said, verbs. And so you can tell many stories and you can ask many questions. And that's the way people typically think of knowledge graphs. The interesting thing I find about what relational AI is doing is they use that construct of a knowledge graph of those nodes and relationships and being able to read them. And then they take it one step further and the nodes and relationships can be mathematics, which is fairly unique in the knowledge graph world. So your nodes could be a number and the relationships could be an equation or a function. And that allows you to do certain mathematical operations with the flexibility that you were just describing with reading sentences, but now you can do it with mathematics. And so you can do things like run simulations. You can do things like solve differential equations, which is really cool to do in a graph. And you can do just statistical analysis fairly quickly and machine learning as well. And I think let's get to that in one sec. I want to stick to the story thing a little bit longer because mm-hmm. one of the things that that is true about construction is there is a ton of knowledge that is very semantic. It's very story-based. It's very... When you do this, you want to do that. It's very contextual. And mm-hmm. one of the problems often is in an industry where you, you know, the average age is like 51, you know, and, and you're looking at a lot of change, but, but a lot of things aren't going to change. We're going to have a lot of technology that makes things better, faster, cheaper, and in some case, cases, fundamentally different. But a lot of what goes into building a building is still going to have metal, plastic, and wood nailed together in ways that that perform a certain way. So lots of knowledge is still going to be enormously valuable. And what's interesting is by talking to people, you can start to capture this data. It doesn't, or this information in this this sort of a graph, it doesn't necessarily need to be heavily quantitative. Ultimately, you can get to quantitative. And I love the fact that what, what relational has done is, is make some of these relationships into functions and various other things. But the idea that, that the generation of a, of a knowledge graph can start with stories is really cool. Is that something that you've seen before? Uh, absolutely. In fact, I'm glad you you brought me back down to practicality. I get I get a little excited about the math side of things, but it's I I always recommend that people start with I call it the minimal viable graph. Like start with a small project where you can gain you know usability and and value right away. 
And a traditional readable knowledge graph for sharing knowledge is, is probably one of the easiest ways, especially in industries where people are, you know, the, the average age is higher and people are, are looking to retire. There's just a wealth of knowledge that we are losing. There's, there's actually several companies that I know of in manufacturing and, you know, in other support spaces where they use knowledge graphs to help understand and diagnose problems. One of them, it's actually support problems of mechanical equipment. And the other one is project problems when a project fails. But basically they're gathering all this information of people who've been working in the industry for especially decades and gathering in it so that when somebody does have a problem with, let's, for example, say a piece of equipment, maybe it's making a strange sound when you start it up they can associate the the problem description, which is all based on years of hearing people call in and, and having problems. And I was starting to associate it with like, when was the equipment manufactured? What kind of environment is it being operated in? And in this particular case, sand was terribly hard on these motors. But yeah, what, what environment, how old is it? How long did you have the scheduled maintenance as appropriate? And they can look at all of this information. And as you can, if you can visualize it as a graph, as like circles and lines for this one incident in this one call and say, you know, sir, it looks like this problem is likely to be a result of this situation. Here's your, here's a recommended maintenance issue for you, or we'll send you a replacement part. And so I think your your example about the aging workforce, that's being seen in multiple different industries. And this is one way to help with not losing that information. Yeah, love it. And I think you'll see more and more of that in industries like construction, where there's just so much implicit knowledge and you can't capture everything, but you can do your best. Well, I, I, I kind of sidetracked us from talking about relational. I'd love to hear what that means. So you mentioned that the relations between these entities can have math or other functions. They can have more than just a verb is what you were saying, which is really interesting. What does that mean? What is that? Like, let's say you've, like, what's an example of, of when you would apply that and, and what it would do? Yeah. So example could be, you know, classic machine learning. So that's not something you would normally run inside of a graph, but you can compute that mathematics inside of a knowledge graph. But one of the cool things that I guess I'll back up and say, when you're thinking about a knowledge graph, we're usually, most people think about one use case, which is to share knowledge. And as we were just talking about, that's really important. That's a great way to get started. But you can do other things with it as well. You can compute analytics. So graph analytics is an area that I'm really very excited about. And that's a natural thing to do because graph analytics are based on graphs and you have your data in a graph now. Yay, you can do amazing graph things. But what relational is doing by adding in these other components of being able to understand and optimize for running mathematics, that means you don't have to leave your graph to also do a little machine learning and do some predictions based on all those connections that you have. And we know connectivity and how things are related are highly predictive. And that's been seen over and over again in, in studies, not that I've done, but that scientists have done, is that relationships and behavior often relationships or verbs, are very predictive of future events. So being able to stay within your graph, use that natively to do machine learning can be very powerful. And then other things like I mentioned simulations as well. So you might be able to run a simulation, for example, of you know whether something may flood or not. So that's usually a highly complex mathematical 
process. But if you already have all your data in a graph and you want to run some simulation of whatever it might be, now you don't have to leave your graph and then come back. So it kind of gives you that common platform. That's amazing. And you remind me one of the things that folks that talk, in fact, I may have even got this from one of your talks, but one of the things that people that talk about knowledge graphs in the context of AI will often say is most of the time you're taking data and you're removing all of the context and you're losing in, a, in effect half of the data. And what a graph will do is allow you to keep that. What is it connected to? What is it related to? And so on. And use that to train your models. And it sounds like what, what you're doing with relational is doing that in place as opposed to some other way. Exactly. And so a lot of a lot of graph feature engineering, which is just getting that predictive stuff, is 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 about grabbing the predictive nature of of the the connections and the structure of your data. And then you move out to another system and do your machine learning. And then you go off and, and make your predictions and, and do whatever you're going to do with your predictions. The one of the unique differences with relational AI is, as you said, you can now do that all within the relational AI system. You don't have to pop in and out, which anybody who's listening who's had to do that knows that every time you transform data from one system to the other, you're just the possibility for error, mistakes, and problems just um, amplifies. Love this. Well, Amy, thank you for an incredible romp through a bunch of topics. We've talked about data centricity and data meshes and data fabric and data umbrellas. Well, okay, maybe not that one. And and really a, another great description of knowledge graphs and, and finally what relational does. So for those of you who are interested in learning more, I'll, I'll have in the show notes how to follow how to follow Amy and relational. And I think she's going to have a couple of other things to share with us in terms of other, other you know, I think some folks from her company and her own content. So Amy, thanks so much. This has been a great podcast. Thank you. I had a wonderful time. Thank you.